They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 6. The Skull Reveals Some Secrets. Now, I've had one or two fortunate breaks throughout this case and I was about to get another. I was wanting to include a forensic science input into the podcast, so I thought I would make contact with a local university, the University of Derby, to see if they could help me with some general forensic science advice. Little did I know that they'd been involved with the Fred the Head case from way back in 2013, something I had no idea of. And they'd performed a series of tests on the skull and even recreated the skull as a 3D printed model prior to the skull being reunited with the body. I contacted the head of Forensic Science Department, a guy called Jonathan Wright, and he put me in touch with Adam Long. Now, Adam was the project supervisor for the work they did on the skull back in 2013. So I arranged an interview with Adam and that interview is the main part of this podcast. We talk about the work they did, and it seems they had some very interesting conclusions about the possibilities of just where Fred may have come from. So Adam, great to talk to you. Uh, what's the background then in terms of how you ended up doing the work on the school? It was really one of my undergraduate students who were entering their third year, her name was Mandy Stevens, and she approached me as a potential IS supervisor to look at a piece of work following on from some early work that she'd done in a previous year's module called uh, Forensic Anthropology. Uh, and during that module, along with the Forensic Imaging, she'd come across this uh, story of Fred the Head and uh, had made contact with Burton Police Station about whether there was uh, availability to actually look at the skull and if that was still in their possession could could that be something that was done uh, and Mandy and I talked about how we might be able to look at that in the context of an independent study so an independent study is something that the students do in their final year uh, and they write a dissertation on that right. uh, and so I was put in touch with Detective Chief Inspector Garrett who was then heading up Burton Police Station and we arranged a meeting with him. So Mandy and I visited Burton Police Station, uh, spoke to DCI Garrett, uh, who actually uh, presented us with the skull there and then. And I wanted a, a little bit more information about why we were interested in maybe accessing or having access to the skull. Uh, and he provided some context uh, to the case 
some of which I was already aware of, you know, living in and around Burton-on-Trent for most of my life. I was aware of this story, but hadn't uh, really delved into it. And this seemed like a great opportunity to become involved. That's the school that they'd retained. I think they'd taken DNA, hadn't they, at that point? Uh, am, I, am I right in thinking that, that they had a pretty good DNA sample from, from the school? Yes, there'd been, there'd been a number of different uh, cold case reviews of the case since the 70s when the body was found. So I think in 2006, that was the latest. And there'd be some work done to, to try and extract DNA from, from the skull in an attempt to then try and further identify who the remains belong to. But this is a particular type of DNA. It's, it's what we call mitochondrial DNA. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not the normal kind of genomic DNA that that we would we would ordinarily target if the if it was from living tissue. So this is this is material which is taken from deep within the the bone structure, and so some work had been done there, and a, and a mitochondrial DNA profile had been recovered. But that isn't as useful uh, in this case as as it has been used in in other cases. Not useful in the sense of it's not being able to track down the particular individual, or because mitochondrial DNA just isn't as useful. No, it can be very useful mitochondrial DNA. I mean, you can you can look at the other cases which has been key to it. So the most famous one, most recently, was King Richard III. You know, mitochondrial DNA was used to to make the link to to an ancestor through King Richard III. So the, so mitochondrial DNA can be absolutely crucial, and and because there's there's relatively a, a large amount of mitochondrial DNA relative to genomic DNA, it can be really really useful in that sense. But in this sense, there is no relative to fall back on in which to do a comparison. So, so it has limited value in that sense. But ultimately, if a relative emerges, that could be used, that relative's DNA could be used as a comparator to the mitochondrial DNA to establish whether there's a link there. If there's a suspected maternal link, yes, because mitochondrial DNA only passes along the maternal lineage. It passes from mother to to offspring uh, but only through the maternal line what what year are we talking here just so i understand the chronology so this was back in 2013 so do you walk away then with head in a head in a cardboard box and take it back to university of derby how, how does the story progress from there no not quite so we had that initial discussion and that proved to be very useful and and what happened then is mandy and i went back to the university and we discussed ways in which we may be able to formulate an appropriate independent study which would be respectful to the remains but might be able to offer some additional information to help the police uh, with their investigation we were aware at that time that the police had kind of reached a position where they had exhausted all possible avenues and therefore they were about to apply to the coroner for a request to uh, inter the remains back to the body uh, and so it was just a case of is there anything that we could do in in order to preserve as a permanent record anything which might later prove of interest so so at that point mandy and i came up with a with a suitable independent study which which uh, looked at non-destructive methods for for evidence preservation uh, and we then uh, applied to Detective Chief Inspector Garrett at Burton Police to uh, ask whether we could have permission to 
to have the skull in our possession and uh, he gave permission on that basis. Great. So the idea being to preserve in some form the skull whilst allowing it to be reinterred with the rest of the remains. That's correct, yes. Great. Okay. So could you talk me through the elements of that process of how you were you were seeking to generate, if you like, a duplicate of that skull? The the initial idea was to look for for non-invasive means of of preservation. So obviously it was there was a number of different aims uh, for the investigation that Mandy undertook. Uh, So looking at the most current uh, methods of preservation. So this would be things like uh, 2D imaging. So conventional photography, uh, maybe X-ray photography but also looking at the possibility of more up-to-date methods, such as three-dimensional printing, 3D printing. Uh, We've got those kind of technologies which which are much more advanced today than they they, they perhaps were back in 2013. They were just emerging. Additive manufacturing was just kind of coming on stream at that point, wasn't it? Yes, that's, that's right. And it was really just to see if, you know, in the absence of having uh, the actual uh, skull uh, as a permanent record, could we generate a three-dimensional replica of that skull to a suitable quality so that, you know, if anybody, uh, if anything anti-mortem came along, which would further the investigation. So if any information came available to the police, in the absence of the real skull, could we go back to a three-dimensional copy or replica to, to, to do anything with that? So that was the basic aim of the, the investigation. Okay. And is, is this technology... And that kind of approach, was that proven at that point in the sense of, was that something that other institutions would have been doing in a similar case? Or were you pushing the boundaries a little bit further in terms of what you were aiming to do? I don't think we were pushing the boundaries in a sense that this wasn't being done elsewhere. There's, there's been this, this kind of development ongoing for a number of years now. However, that capability... Uh, wasn't something that we were familiar with at Derby. Uh, certainly within within the field of anthropology, it's not something that we've been routinely doing. So it was more of a of, of a personal interest in regards to this piece of evidence in terms of that that preservation. But the, the, I guess the real aim the real aim for Mandy was to verify using the most up to date methodologies and research that whatever was being reported at the time of the original inquest, the time of the original investigation, did those findings match to, uh, to current modern day thinking uh, and, and research? And, and that's what Mandy ultimately uh, proved. Okay, that's, that's interesting. So obviously you, you're one of the few people to been in the presence of Fred's school and handled it and, and been up close to it. I guess the obvious question is, I mean, did you did you notice anything particularly unusual about the skull or you know, were there marks or any any kind of damage that you saw when you when you handled it? No, I mean, I was always struck. I was always struck by the amount of detail which was present around the dental records to do with the skull. So so when the skull came into our possession, the original dentures that were fitted. So so some of the some of the dental work that had been reported on Fred the skull was actually in situ present within the, in the mouth cavities. Uh, so that that struck me as something which uh, I understood uh, from the investigation, the police had put a lot of emphasis on trying to to use as a means to identify who the individual was. Uh, and it struck me with, with the amount of dental work which was present that that 
that uh, that could not be followed up. From my understanding of the investigation, they did quite a concerted effort to try and identify who the who the manufacturers of the, the bridge work and the dental work that had been done to, on the victim. Uh, but that was fruitless. It didn't it didn't lead to any particular lines of inquiry, uh, and that struck me as as. Uh, you know, having viewed the, the extent to which there was dental work present in the school, that that, that didn't yield more information. Maybe uh, that's a clue in itself. Yes, yes, maybe. Uh, but in terms of the anatomy and you know the anatomy of the skull, nothing really struck me as being out of the ordinary. I mean, anthropology is not really my area of, of specialism. I, I recognise the, the gross features of a skull, but uh, that's about the extent of my knowledge. I'm afraid. But there were no there were no fractures or damage that was clearly evident on the skull when you when you were looking. No, yeah. no, none of those. Okay, so you're now going to, or Mandy is now going to try and create this. 3d image so how does that start what, what what are the steps in that process so well prior to prior to that one of the things that mandy was keen to do was was obviously record and capture the skull in as much detail as possible so she did that through a number of different approaches with with the aid of colleagues within the university so the first was to do uh, a full what we call medical photography of the skull so from all anatomical positions so that gives us a nice accurate uh, record of the skull the the next aspect would would have been to undertake a an x-ray uh, photography of the of the skull again uh, from a medical perspective so viewing viewing the skull from all uh, anatomical angles to ensure that all the features uh, which aren't present on the outer surface can be captured uh, and then the third aspect was to consider the ability to try and replicate the school via a, a 3D print process. So we have colleagues working in our engineering faculty within the university who Mandy approached. They were doing some work with, with 3D printing technology. We approached them, or Mandy approached them, and, and uh, talked about whether it would be possible to take a 3D impression of the the skull, capture it via digital means, and then be able to effectively replicate that by printing it out uh, in a three-dimensional structure, which effectively meant attaching uh, little uh, reflective pieces to the surface of the skull so that uh, a digital laser can then read the position of those in three-dimensional space. And uh, through a series of scanning, effectively, of the, of the skull, looking at all of those three-dimensional readings, that within a computer model can then accurately generate this uh, digital representation of the skull, which was used then to uh, to effectively print out a three-dimensional life-size image of the skull. Very interesting. I mean, do you know what the kind of tolerances you're working to there? Just so I kind of, I kind of understand that. I mean, are, you, are we are we talking you know, microns of difference between the actual physical specimen and the replicated specimen, if you like? Yeah, it's it's something that was one particular aspect which Mandy was really interested to kind of follow up because it was to it you know that was part of the aims. How accurate is the assessment 
assessment or could the assessment be of a three-dimensional does it accurately replicate the skull in all of its detail but what we were able to observe that there was clearly a difference in the quality of the three-dimensional printed image compared to the actual skull itself so i i wouldn't say we were capturing the full level of detail i mean we, we were certainly down to, to to tens tens if not hundreds of microns rather yeah. than down to the micron level in yeah. terms of degree of clarity no but that's interesting because it, it's obvious that you'll clearly get a, a a degradation if you like of the perfect image and again you were uh, you were operating back in 2013 and things will have moved on, but it's interesting you, you, you managed to get to that level of accuracy, really. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, when you look at images of the, the 3D replica, it's absolutely clear it's a skull and it's of a life-size, you know, in life-size, one-to-one size. Uh, and you can see levels of detail, the gross levels of detail. So you can see certainly the, the orbits of the eyes, the nasal cavities, the, the you know, the the, the the jawbone and the relative levels of detail but when you start to get down to the minutiae so looking at the 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 details of the individual fissures on the school surface you know they're not quite as evident as they are on the real school uh, the level of detail in regards to some of the teeth that you know the, the the definition between what would have been the, the jawbone and the teeth themselves isn't quite as well defined on the on the replica but fr- from an anatomical position everything was was relative in the right place fantastic okay interesting so so that that replicated skull what what happened to that did that go back to to burn police so they could keep that within the body of evidence if you like and then they could reunite the skull with the rest of the body or how, how did the story go from there in terms of once you've done that work what happened to that skull so once we did the, once we did the piece of work, the uh, the three dimensional school was retained at the university, uh, so that's still there to view. It was kept as a permanent record, really, of of Mandy's uh, independent studies project. It can be made available on request from the police if if they wanted to take forward an investigation looking looking further at that. The the actual skull, so Fred's skull, uh, it was returned to Burton Police Station, and it's my understanding that's now being repatriated to the body. Now you mentioned earlier that uh, that Mandy done a lot of work in terms of looking at the dimensions of the skull and some of the measurements of the skull and things like that what was that able to tell you anything at all about about the individual and themselves uh what mandy was doing was looking carefully at uh, some of the markers that had been suggested in the original uh investigation uh, and looking to see if uh, they they corresponded to what she was kind of seeing now. So everything that that was reported at the time, Mandy was was effectively just checking to see if modern modern techniques kind of were mirroring what what was re- reported, and and uh, that's what was was actually uh, that's what Mandy confirmed. So that primarily would have been male, probably uh, between in his mid twenties to mid thirties or late thirties, and and what Mandy identified was uh confirmed confirmed those findings yes yeah based on the 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 limited information you have from just looking at the skull obviously some of those other features you need to look more extensively at the skeletal remains as a whole Yeah, of course. Okay, great. I know from our conversation uh, when we were setting this recording up, we we talked about some of the other work she was able to do, though, in terms of perhaps being able to give some insights into probable or possible geographic 
identification. Can you just give me a little bit more detail on that? Yes, there's been there's been a number of different studies undertaken uh, to try and identify or to give suggestion as to possible geographic identity for cases where they find uh, individuals such as such as in this, and it could be applied to all kinds of things. So it could be mass disaster, or it could be mass graves, or although under those circumstances. So one such piece of work uh, was developed by somebody called Richard White, and he he was based in Australia and this essentially looked at uh, over 3,000 different schools from from various locations from around the world uh, and what they were what what he was doing at that time was looking at what we call the non-metric traits that, that are associated uh, principally with with the things like the school so non-metric traits are things which you can't necessarily measure they're either they're, they're either absent or they're not and, it, and it's particular features of bones uh, and the way that they come together on that school surface uh, and what that does is build up a database of the presence or absence of these features uh, associated to geographic locations of individuals uh, and this isn't the only this isn't the only piece of research that has been done there was another one called uh, 4disc3 uh, and that was developed based on over 1400 american forensic cases so we've got different things happening around the world but but Maddie was interested in the cranid uh, uh, research because that that i say took its information from over 3,000 schools from around the world. And uh, when Mandy looked at this school and was, was able to uh, identify these non-metric traits, along with some of the other metric traits of the school, uh, when you plug those into this piece of software, this software will, will, will effectively undertake an analysis of all of these traits together and then look for the closest association based on geographic location. And what this piece of software came back with was there seemed to be a greatest probability of observing these traits in Hungarian or potentially of British origin. However, what, what it did initially indicate was a closest neighbour to that being of Denmark and it being of a male individual. So that was that was really interesting. It kind of kind of gave a new kind of slant to the investigation or the possibility that that we might be dealing with human remains which were descended from outside of the UK borders and that may be one of the reasons why Fred was was never uh, identified in that first investigation. Just so I understand a little bit more about that so if it's shown as a higher probability of Hungarian uh, origin does that mean that person is descended from a Hungarian lineage, or is himself Hungarian? Just so, just so I understand that, that you know, is this someone that could have been of Hungarian descent five hundred years ago, or actually it's him that's Hungarian? Yeah. So, so this piece of software, so the Cranid program, it uses it uses data that has been derived from from more recent findings okay. uh, from individuals around the world. So that is a point in time measure. I guess, oh, for, for those typical features which exist kind of th these days, uh, right. rather than features which will have existed 500 or so years ago. However, you know, we're dealing with, with things which are genetic, so gen genetic traits will obviously follow down down the, the line, the lineages, uh, and some of those that may carry forward so so in terms of in terms of the probability in this case when you look at things together the probability is suggesting that they could be of 
Hungarian descent, but obviously that's based on this point in time measure. It, it's, it doesn't really tell you whether those are going to be uh, of direct Hungarian descent or whether that could be from uh, Hungarian lineage. It doesn't, it doesn't right. discriminate that far. I'm interested that of the two non-UK nations, if you like, that were suggested through uh, Cranid, Hungary and Denmark, both of which kind of border the Germanic parts of, of Europe. Germany didn't come up within that. Is it, do, do we take these, these deductions as actually indic- indicative of that whole Germanic area, or are they quite specific to Hungary and Denmark? It does suggest, though, that the Cranid software differentiates between Hungary and Germany and differentiates yeah. Hungary and Poland. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the one of the features of this particular software is that that the once once you've conducted an analysis, it, it can be adjusted. So the the output from the analysis can be adjusted based taking into things like the sample size between different populations. So uh, if, for example, in the construction of those databases, they were more Hungarian individuals which were included in it, that might suggest with the additional data and given that higher population size, that might drive the the program to suggest there is a likely greater probability of them being from that particular area. And when that was done, uh, it did actually alter the geographical location more towards Hungarian descent rather than of Danish descent. How interesting. Okay. It is supported by the fact that Fred had that wedding ring on his right wedding ring finger, which is something which culturally is common to those areas too. So that's it's an interesting Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, just one thing on finally on, on, on Cranid. I mean, how reliable is it? Has obviously it's been it, it's a software that's fairly widely used, I think, in, in anthropological fields. Is is it generally considered to be a pretty reliable technique or, or has, it, has, has it got its problems? What I can say more generally about forensic science is that forensic science is about utilising the full evidential value uh, of any information available to us and 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 what this effect effectively does is 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 bring together a series of individual pieces of information which on their own probably don't make that much of a difference but when you start to think of uh, of evidence coming together in combination suddenly the, the the weight of that evidence becomes almost greater than, than the sum of its individual parts so when we start to look at look at additional uh, information we've made available to us and, and this is what craney did it's just another type of arsenal that's available to the forensic scientists that that enables them to to use the information uh to to, to try and determine if there's any greater evidential value or any or any additional evidential value like all things in forensic science we're dealing with with relative probabilities and and in isolation you know they perhaps don't really account for very much but when you collectively start looking at these together then the probabilities of, of, of observing all of these different features uh, and it being something other, you know, different to what what is being suggested, it becomes even more remote, and therefore, you know, you're left with the obvious, I guess. I think the evidence is starting to mount up in favour of the victim being of Eastern European origin, with currently Hungary or Denmark the most likely country they came from. It matches three key aspects of the case. 
the wedding ring on the right hand wedding ring finger, the lack of local identifying information, and the cranid evidence that we've just heard about. I'd like to take you through something important. Amongst my Facebook friends, I have one person from Denmark and one person from Hungary. Hello Lotta, hello Kate. I checked with them both about whether men wore the wedding ring on the right hand ring finger and they both confirmed that that was the case, particularly in Hungary, less so in Denmark. It was during that conversation with my Hungarian friend I had something of a logical revelation which, if it's true, takes us really close to identifying who Fred is. And I'd like to talk that through with you. If it is true, I am disappointed it took me so long to realize this. But if you think I'm missing something, let me know. Let me know on the Facebook page or let me know by email. I'm making one assumption. I'm assuming that the ring is a wedding ring. It was being worn as a wedding ring by someone to whom wearing a wedding ring on the right hand was a normal cultural thing to do. So if it was worn as a wedding ring there must have been a wedding. No one wears a wedding ring without a wedding. Because the ring was sold in 1969 that wedding could not have happened before spring 1969. It could not have happened later than spring 1970. Why? Because the groom was dead. Marriages are registered and can be accessed. The surname of the groom and the bride are recorded. I think Fred's real name appears in the marriage records between spring 1969 and spring 1970. Now, unfortunately, the number of marriages in 1969 in England and Wales was 400,000. The same again in 1970. So let's assume between spring 1969 and spring 1970, half a million marriages took place. But not with Hungarian names or even Eastern European names. That number is much, much smaller. In 1969, there was not the number of Eastern European people in the UK that we have today. I reckon one in a thousand of those marriages were of people from Eastern Europe. So that's not half a million, that's 500. But if we limit it to the Midlands, that 500 people is closer to 200 people. So it's my assertion that Fred's real name appears in that list of 200 people. So my job in the course of the next week is to identify everybody who got married in the Midlands with an Eastern European name between spring 1969 and spring 1970. Fred, I think, will be one of them. Until next time, goodbye.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.